Would you like predictable monthly income with annual returns up to 15% or more? Norada Capital Management offers you the opportunity to invest in promissory notes with fixed rates of return and monthly direct deposits. We provide investors with an effortless way to diversify beyond other investment options like stocks and bonds and even real estate. Our promissory notes have a high rate of return and are 100% passive. Interest is paid monthly, directly into your account, delivering truly effortless income. Many other passive investments offer rates of return in the 4-6% to range. Our promissory notes have delivered fixed rates of return in the double digits since conception. All notes are in good standing and Norada has a no-default history and reputation. And retirement accounts such as self-directed IRAs and Roth IRAs also qualify for this investment. So if you're looking for an effortless investment with predictable monthly income and double-digit returns, then visit our website at noradacapital.com. Learn more at noradacapital.com today. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. If this is your first time here, welcome. And if this is not your first time here, I'm glad you made it back. Today, I wanted to do a show that was a little different than what we typically do, which is hyper-focused on real estate specifically. Um, So much of what ties into real estate and investing in general has to do with what is going on in the economy and around the world, whether it be oil prices or interest rates or countries devaluing their currency versus our currency, changing the cost of goods that goes into transportation and changing the cost of the materials that go into housing, etc., etc. It's really a very wide, complex, interconnected web. So what I'm going to start doing in future episodes, I'm going to sprinkle in a show here and there about the economy and about economics and about some topic related to real estate, but not directly. And uh, hopefully that's going to help enlighten you and broaden your knowledge about what is going on around the country and the world. Um, I don't get into politics, of course, but maybe something that is happening in Washington is going to affect financing or what you can and can't do with your properties. Who knows? Uh, So today I'm bringing a guest on by the name of J. David Stein, really smart guy. Um, He used to manage uh, billions of dollars in a fund, not a hedge fund, but uh, an investment fund, and he's a strategist. He has an interesting way to look at things, and he explains things in a fairly clear way. In fact, he's got a great podcast that I listen to and I enjoy. So it's just one of many sources of information that I get. Anyway, um, I uh, I was a little pressed on time on my interview with him, so I had to kind of rush it a little bit, and I apologize about that in advance. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S., Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome David Stein to the show. David was the chief investment strategist and chief portfolio strategist at Fund Evaluation Group 
LLC, a $33 billion investment advisory firm. Today, David likes to teach people about money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. He's also the host of the personal finance podcast, Money for the Rest of Us, which, by the way, is a great podcast. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marco, for having me. Good to be here. It's uh, great having you on the show. I actually am a listener of your podcast. I enjoy it very much because it's an interesting, easy listening format to learn about money and the economy and everything else surrounding that, which is not exactly what our show is about. But I wanted to bring you on because I think a lot of our listeners are uh, either sophisticated and or interested in different aspects and asset classes and how maybe all this stuff in the economy ties back to real estate and, and the landscape that may or may not affect us. And so this is going to be kind of a different type of show. What I'd like to do is start off with you and maybe you could tell us about yourself and your background so people have a better frame of reference. For sure. As as you mentioned in the bio, I, most of my career I spent as an institutional investment advisor. We were a a firm that started working mostly with, with not-for-profit organizations, a lot of endowments and foundations. And as part of that, the core is asset allocation, helping them identify managers. And, and as part of that, we, we focused on real estate. So we spent a lot of time researching commercial real estate managers, REITs, and, and as well as other asset classes. And I, I was with that firm for about 15 years, both we as a consulting capacity, we would consult with clients, but for about a decade, I also managed a, a portfolio, about a $2 billion portfolio where I worked with, essentially we were given discretion by endowments to sort of like, here's, here's our target and, and here's ranges and, and go, go find the best asset classes and managers within that policy. And so that got me much more involved in economics, in, in adjusting asset allocations based on market conditions as opposed to strictly buy and hold investing. And then I got into my mid-40s and I, I was – we were all kind of the same age at this partnership and I was – I just didn't want to wait out the clock. I was ready to try something different. So I left that firm about four years ago, my partner's bought me out. And about two years later, I launched the podcast and I, I do online education in terms of I have a membership site where I, I provide asset, alloc guide, asset allocation guidance to people and, and education on the economy. But what I don't do is I no longer manage money. So I'm no longer a registered investment advisor. So everything I do is really on a general education basis. Okay. So you're still primarily involved on paper assets. It is. It is. I mean, I personally, I invest in, I'm in a couple of, of private capital funds. I've done private investing. We own our farm. I've done some rental income properties in the past. And, but most of, you know, well, about my net worth is about half private. So non-public, half more paper assets. So it, I split and, and I'm comfortable with, with both sides of that. What I find is, is many, Listeners are starting to the point to, or they're searching for, you know, how do you do the private side? And, and that's where a show like yours can be very valuable because it, it's just a different ball game for people. And whereas I, I probably in terms of my education with individuals spend more on the, the publicly traded side, the paper asset side, mainly because th there's just not as quality information out there as I would like to in terms of investing and a big portion of what in terms of how I invest is I'm primarily passive. So indexing 
ETFs, primarily buy and hold, but not entirely so. I don't have the temperament to sit and ride down a market that falls 40%. And so I'm always looking for what I call regime changes, global economic recessions, and and then adjust portfolios based on that. And, and the, the way I describe investing is investing on the leading edge of the present. We're not trying to forecast or predict. We're trying to react as things happen. And when there are signs that, that suggest that that the choppy waters are ahead, and then I'll, I'll make adjustments and I'll certainly teach my members or show them and let them know. And I obviously would let them know on a podcast also to, to potentially pull in the sales a little bit. Okay. So that's, that's a good segue to one of the first things I want to ask you about. I want to get your impression as it relates to the landscape of the major asset classes out there, starting with equities, which most people just know that as the stock market. Well, one of the things that I do, and I did this as an institutional advisor, is you can't invest in any asset class unless you have a an understanding of what it can earn. You know, not based on history, but looking out 10 years. And, and so I've always invested in a way that sort of, you know, what's a reasonable assumption? And, and so I want to understand what's driving returns. So when I look at stocks, I what drives return over time is the dividend yield. It's the corporate earnings growth. And the third element is, is how has valuations changed? How are, are invest, investors valuing those earnings? And so during a period when they're richly valued, it's very expensive, you, know, you can get you know, very strong returns. And you know, much of, of the strong returns that investors experienced in the 80s and 90s wasn't so much because the, the corporate earnings were growing faster, it was because valuations got more expensive. And so when I look at where we are today with stocks, you know, U.S. stocks are overvalued than, than they have been historically. And so the PEs are high. The, the dividend yields are on the lower side, about a 2%. And so when I, when I look at U.S. stocks, you know, a reasonable estimate over the ne- next 10 years for a nominal annualized return is about five and a half to six percent. Now, the wild card there is will investors at some point not be willing to pay as much as they're paying today? When you look at the, let's say the median price to earnings ratio on the S&P 500 is in the low 20s. 10 years from now, if they're only w- willing to pay 18, then you're going to see stocks not do as well as five and a half to six percent. You can do better with stocks in in emerging markets, for example, where you have higher dividend yields, faster corporate earnings growth, and and less of a risk that they're going to get revalued downward. And so there, the expected return is more eight to nine percent, as well as some other non-U.S. areas. But but generally speaking, I and mean, I typically always have, and I think most people should have some investments. In stocks. Now, the question is, is, is what level? I've never been a person that says 100% stocks, uh, particularly for, for adults that are in their 40s or 50s or 60s. I, I, I think you should have different drivers of returns and, and stocks do well over the long term, but you have to have reasonable expectations. Do you think the stock market is overpriced and inflated? And, and let me tell you why I'm saying this. P ratios typically in a normal quote unquote market are going to be in the teens, 14, 16 range. When you're above 20 as a PE ratio, to me, at least that tells me that it's overpriced and inflated. And the higher that goes, I think it topped out at 26, if I'm not mistaken, at the last crash. 
Is that not a flag that raises concern? Well, it is, and 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 which is why. But that's just the U.S. stock market. The non-U.S. You, you're still in the teens. Okay. And so it, it it. But the U.S. stock market, particularly large company stocks, yeah, they're, they're higher value. Now, I just did a little segment for for my members because we were talking about that because I the most recent episode I did I think it's episode 15 we were talking about different valuations for the U.S. stock market and, and PE was one measure you can look at sort of what percent do households of their net worth have in stocks how what is the total size of the stock market or capitalization relative to the economy and and all those measures show the market is overvalued what Shows it is undervalued are measures relative to interest rates. And so, for example, there's something called the Fed model where you compare the earnings yield on stocks. And what an earnings yield is, it's the inverse of the price earnings ratio. So essentially, it's the earnings divided by the price. And the earnings yield right now on the S&P 500 is about 5%. And and the, this particular Fed model, actually, that's using historical earnings. If we look at forward earnings, the earnings yields about 6.5%. And what the Fed model says, the market, the U.S. market, stock market is fairly valued when the earnings yield equals the yield on the 10-year treasury. So with 10-year bonds yielding 1.5%, then the earnings yield for stocks on a forward-looking basis is 6.5%. What that says is the U.S. stock market, I mean, if you firmly believed in that measure, which I don't, but it's just another measure, then the market is 75% undervalued. And and in fact, it won't be fairly valued until earnings yield gets to whatever the 10-year treasury bond is. But, you know, where, where that causes me to pause is, again, if the earnings yield is the inverse of the price-earnings ratio – if the earnings yield got down to one and a half percent, the PE of, it, of the SP 500 would be over 65. Now that, that is stratospheric. Yeah. But the, the point of the whole exercise is lower interest rates can justify higher valuations for stocks. And, and those that are focused on, on that particular measure would say, Oh, a PE of 22, the stocks are still undervalued. I don't necessarily believe that, but it's also a reason why I don't, you know, I still have exposure to U.S. stocks. It's just not a huge weighting in my portfolio. But when interest rates are manipulated and we don't have a true free market uh, system and everything seems to be rigged or manipulated through whether it's quantitative easing or, you know, playing around with taxes, etc. I mean, whatever it may be your frame of reference changes. So stocks may look undervalued using your example here, but in actuality, they might be more overvalued than you would believe it to be because you're comparing it to treasury bills that are at historic lows. Does that make sense? Well, I, ex exactly, which is why, you know, at the end of the day, I yes, my, my belief is the U.S. stock market is overvalued. I think a reasonable rate of return over the next 10 years on a nominal basis for U.S. stocks is... is Sort of that four to six percent. Okay. And, 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 th but then you have to compare that to, let's say, REITs, right? REITs yields right now are close to historic lows. And so your expectation for REITs are also low because the dividend yield on REITs are, are is four percent. I mean, I remember investing in REITs in the late nineties where yields were closer to seven to eight percent. 
and the value of REITs were selling at about a 20% discount to the value of the real estate. And so it's sort of, you reference interest rates, historically low interest rates are influencing every asset class, including real estate. Private real estate right now, when you look at cap rates, for example, which I assume, I don't know if you, I assume you talk about cap rates. Cap rates is a pretty common metric that investors use, although it's not my favorite. I'd rather talk about the cash on cash return because most investors are going to use other people's money, in other words, leverage to acquire their assets. Right. So, so, but, but if you look at strict cap rates, right, right now cap rates are in the, in my town, for example, I live in a college town. People are buying rental real estate apartments at cap rates of 5%. Wow. And, and, and I would never do that. But I'm saying that whole interest, you know, we can talk about whether interest rates are, are manipulated or not, but the fact is they are at historic lows and, and that is flowing through every single asset class. Not only are they at historic lows, but there's even chatter about having negative interest rates. I mean, we may follow, you know, what other countries are doing in terms of going negative on the uh, Fed funds rate. Well, you, you could, or one of the things, for example, right now, about 30% of countries around the world have negative interest rates. And, and some are severe. For example, Japan has negative nominal interest rates going out 17 years. So almost half their yield curve is, is negative. You have Germany with interest rates of 0.5%. And, and so then you have the U.S. at 1.5%. Well, we live in a global market, and, and the reality is when our, when our nominal rates are 1.5% and they're negative on the 10 years in Japan and Switzerland and they're at a half a percent in Germany, that puts downward pressure on U.S. interest rates because you have global capital flows coming in and, and essentially buying those bonds and pushing down yields. And so it, it's a global phenomenon. We live in a global market, and, and you're correct. We could have even lower interest rates in the U.S., irrespective of inflation, just because of the demand for global capital moving around, trying to find the best yield. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day are taking a week. You have too many manual processes. You don't have one source of truth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your KPIs. That's your key performance indicators. In one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash real estate. That's netsuite.com slash real estate to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash real estate. 
this is one of the things I like about you, David, and your podcast is it's much, much bigger picture and it's more global in nature. Um, and some, you know, it's, it's, it's good stuff to know and learn. Uh, you don't have to be an expert in, in listening to your podcast or other people's podcasts about, you know, geopolitics and economics. I like to follow it because I like to ask the question, okay, how does that influence me? So to kind of bring this back down you know, one of the implications of having low interest rates or negative interest rates is is that if you're sitting on cash or cash equivalents, you don't want to save that capital. Um, you don't want to be sitting on a pile of cash because ultimately what happens is you become a loser. Savers are losers. And, and I don't mean that in a personal way. I'm basically saying that if you're only getting a half a point interest on your cash, effectively, you're getting a negative rate of return because when you factor inflation into the equation, you're losing purchasing power every year on that cash. So the best thing to do is to put it into equities or you know, the stock market is your cup of tea or hard assets like real estate or commodities or precious metals. I, I agree with the exception of the only, I mean, I, I always have some cash. I mean, I think everyone should have emergency savings, but Irrespective of that, when when I see many asset classes undervalued, I look at it on a portfolio basis. So I realize the cash, and, and it's probably ten percent of of my net worth. I realize that loses money every year, but that that's dry, essentially dry powder is what they call it in the business. So capital that I can deploy if we get to the point where valuations or something gets more attractive. And, and that, but you never know. And so I, that, that's just how I've always invested, just having something there. I've never felt compelled to, to put all my money to work because it's sitting there. And, and I learned, you know, who I learned, I learned that from probably more than anyone is Seth Klarman, who runs the Balpost Group, a hedge fund. And he managed for one of my clients. They had been with this hedge fund for 20 years or more. And he, at times had 40% of his portfolio in cash. And it wasn't like the rest was all levered up, but then he could still generate a, a low teen to mid teen return. Now he's a brilliant investor. I mean, nobody can invest like that, but cash was, was there to protect and wait for opportunity. And so there's, if the opportunity isn't there, if real estate's too expensive or you can't find the property, then sometimes it's okay to wait until the right opportunity comes along. Sure. And, and I agree with you. I wasn't referring to, you know, a rainy day fund or emergency cash. I'm, I'm talking about investable cash. You know, you have a percentage of it in cash, uh, dry powder for the next opportunity, and then the rest is deployed across real estate or and or equities or whatever the case is. Well, exactly. exactly. And, and the reason why, I mean, it gets back to to the, in which case, you know, people are f afraid often of volatility, of losing money. But in your example, somebody holding cash is you're losing money on a risk inflation adjusted basis. Yeah. And volatility is actually, uh, you know, hitting the nail on the head. We have clients that call us and say, look, I've got half a million or a million in the stock market. I'm running scared. I'm a little nervous or whatever the case is. And they're looking to divest, not necessarily liquidate their entire holdings in the equities market, but they're saying, look, I'm getting nervous about the gyrations. The ups and downs are getting larger. It's not uncommon to have a three-digit swing one day and a three-digit swing the other way the next day. 
So I think they're looking for something with a little more consistency and, and that's why they're calling us and they're saying, Hey, you know, I need help in diversifying into other asset classes. And, and, and that's not, I don't, that's not an isolated case. I think you're seeing that around the country. And I think that's one reason you're seeing valuations of real estate go up. And, and, and an example, the, you know, I had a realtor friend approach me. He had built a 12 plex in this college town, fully rented, brand new building. And his buyer was essentially buying it through his individual retirement account, buying the entire building, going to borrow 50% and put up 50% equity. And the cap rate was about five and a half percent. So it was very, very low. And, and, and it's obviously his cash on cash yield is higher because of the debt. Well, I ended up lending on it because I, I called around the banks. There's very few banks that will lend on individual retirement accounts because they can't get a personal guarantee. Well, my, my yield on that debt piece is higher than his return on the equity, at least on a cap, cap rate basis. And, and I think, and, and the reason is people are afraid of the stock market and they're, they're going into real estate. And, and I, I don't think anyone should put their entire retirement into one building because I, I think, you know, he's going to be fine, but the reality is anything could happen. Anything could happen. Yeah. No, that would be silly to be in one property in one market and that is it. You know, to me, I, I mean, I have this very, very general rule of thumb and I call it three to five in three to five. And I simply mean just acquire a portfolio in one market of three to five properties, maybe more, and then diversify that. Uh, asset class of real estate, income real estate into another market and purchase another three to five. And then a third market of three to five. At that point, you've got, you know, 10 to 15 properties, maybe more. Mm -hmm. And and that's to us how we diversify uh, geographically across the country within the asset class of real estate. Now, there could be other things in someone's portfolio, like fixed income or equities and whatnot. But I think that's an important point to diversify your real estate holdings, not have one building in one on one block in one market. Um, that to me is risky. Oh, it is. It is. But they do it. I'm, I'm going to tee up my next question by just asking you to very briefly cover the question, what is inflation and what causes it? And I've already covered this in a previous episode um, on my own, but just for new listeners, just tell us you know, what exactly is inflation and what causes it? Well, in terms of its its exact measure is is countries around the world, their statistical agency, they they take a a reference basket of goods. So there's food and there's energy and and there's rents on on essentially the housing component, healthcare, and and they add it up and they see what does it cost to buy this representative basket of goods, and then they compare that basket of goods to you know the, the prior period. And if the basket of goods is going up over time, then, then that, that's, that's what the inflation is. It's just the change in those overall prices and, and they measure it. It's called the consumer price index. There's, there's different measures because there's different baskets of goods. Now, the, the question is what causes it? And, and that, that's not an easy question to answer because there, there is a psychological component to what causes inflation. In other words, you look at Venezuela right now. I think I saw this morning inflation of 1600%. Part of that, you know, inflation is caused by demand for goods. If there's, if your capacity constrained 
in terms of a country's ability to produce goods and services. So you have constrained capacity. At the same time, you have more cash being created. You know, in a perverse situation like Zimbabwe, you have the government printing cash. Potentially, you have that situation in Venezuela. So that cash is now is going after the limited capacity to produce goods and services that causes prices to go up. But if you think prices are going to go up, you'll often go and, and purchase a good now because it's going to go up tomorrow. Well, that can that can further constrain capacity and push up inflation even more. Now, what you know, the primary measure that causes the the amount of cash in the system to 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 increase is banks, bank lending. Bank when banks lend, and, and I have episodes on the show. I think what's it's called how money is created and destroyed. What people don't realize that with the banking system, the we're, we were taught in college or in school, right? Well, banks, all they do is they just lend money that's already there. Well, no, that's not exactly how it works. When the bank lends money, they actually create the money by doing an accounting entry and, and they create the deposit. So if I go out and they borrow money from a bank, that that loan is essentially an asset of the bank and they, they do their little balance sheet and they say, David's got a loan. And then they put a little accounting entry on, on their bank that, and they put a deposit. They don't go find the money. They create it. And so bank lending expands the amount of money in the system. And so in a period where you have banks doing excessive lending, that can also cause inflation. Or when they're reducing lending, that can put some deflationary. So that that's sort of a long-winded, perhaps complicated, perhaps simple explanation. But it's multifaceted. Essentially, the price of goods going up because, either because of constrained capacity or because of an increase in the money supply. We could literally have a full episode on almost every one of these questions that I may or may not ask you. So, uh, you know, listeners need to keep that in mind that these seem like short questions, but the answers are pretty elaborate and can be pretty in-depth. But I think, David, what you're saying is that um, because of this system, some people may refer to as a Ponzi scheme, but the system of fractional reserve banking for every dollar you put into the bank, the bank can now lend out 10 times that amount of money. And that cash, that currency floats through the system. And as it increases, it creates more supply of money, chasing after fewer goods. And therefore, the the net effect that you and I, the average Joe on the street sees is that prices get pushed up. And we call that inflation. It's really this just the increase in the amount of currency in the system, but we see it as prices going up. Exactly, exactly. So I, I had to ask you that question to tee up the next one because you've got this article, which I, is great. It's, I mean, it caught my attention immediately. It's why you shouldn't pay off your mortgage. And I do, I shouldn't say just I, we, all our investment counselors, we talk to clients about this as one of the many benefits of having uh, real estate as an investment, but more specifically having fixed rate debt attached to that investment. So I'm going to let you take it from here and explain why you wrote this article and why you suggest not to pay off your mortgage and, and what the reasons are for that. Well, and I, I started with the fact that my mortgage is paid off. Right? <laughs> I know. Because all the reasons for not paying off your mortgage, they're all financial and they're quantitative. And the basic reason is when houses over time tend to, unless you happen to be in a very supply-constrained area like Orange County, California, 
they tend to track inflation. So the, the house is going up relative to inflation, generally speaking, at best. And obviously, you have the maintenance cost. But if you have a fixed rate mortgage, you're paying off that debt with inflated dollars. So over time, you're, you essentially are getting the benefit, the, the opposite of, of essentially the benefit of inflation. Because inflation hurts people that 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 have assets that aren't like we talked about earlier that aren't generating return greater than inflation. But if you have an asset that's in, increasing relative inflation, yet you have funded that with debt, inflation actually benefits holders of debt because they're repaying the back the mortgage with inf- essentially inflated. Dollars, And so that that would be the quantitative reason to not pay off your mortgage. The reason to pay off your mortgage was the reason why I I just hate just didn't like having debt. I hate making payments. And and just I just some people just are comfortable, especially in their home, just not having just not worrying about it. And but I can I can give all kinds of I have degrees in finance. I can give all types of quantitative reason. But at the end of the day. In our family, we just felt better just having it paid off. Yeah, that that may be true with a principal residence, but when you know you're dealing with real estate investors, as we deal with, sometimes the question comes up: Should I get a mortgage? Uh, should I buy it all cash? And if so, how much should I finance? And should I get a thirty year fixed or fifteen year fixed or an adjustable rate? Well, in my opinion, one of the ways to look at this is the best deal going is to get a thirty year fixed rate mortgage. With interest rates, mortgage rates so low, you know, near or at historic lows, you should get as much of that cheap, cheap money as you can, attach it to an asset that produces income, have your tenant pay it off. Not only are they paying it off, every year you're paying that mortgage off in cheaper and cheaper dollars. So your $500 mortgage payment today might look relatively large. But in 10 years or 15 years from now, that $500 payment is going to look quite small, very small. Oh, exactly. And that, and that is the, the exact way to do it. And, and it, is one, it is the one advantage that as real estate investors that we have. Yes, valuations might be high for different asset classes, but debt is really, really cheap. And, and that's what you're seeing corporations do. Corporations are going out and, and they're borrowing at very, very low interest rates to take advantage of it. And it's the opportunity for individuals to to do the exact same thing. There was an article actually just yesterday uh, I read on Bloomberg. And uh, apparently because interest rates are so cheap, now that the regulators have freed up some sort of regulation, there are a lot of companies that are actually buying up their own stock to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And so they're taking advantage of these low interest rates. So if they're doing it, there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing it. We should be doing the exact same thing. If you can qualify, I have to admit, we had a rental real estate property. And, and you know, after doing that episode uh, on th- that I talked about that you referenced, I thought, you know, I, I should go get a mortgage on this rental property that we have. And I went to the bank. And you know, as I mentioned, I left my job three or four years ago and and. You know, so most of my income is from investing and, and and other things, but there's not a steady paycheck there, and it was an absolute disaster to try to get a mortgage. I I had the credit officer wanting me to explain all these K ones I had on on my tax return, many of which were for ETFs, 
or exchange trader notes or, or things had nothing to do with businesses. And she wanted me to produce the financials. And I thought, oh, my. And, and I finally, I gave up in frustration. You need a better loan officer and a better I lender. Think so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, that, that's one of the downsides of living in Idaho, I guess. Uh, unsophisticated banks. I'll, I'll hook you up. Call me later. There you go. Well, we ended, we ended up selling the property. Oh, it, no. Because, well, again, because my, my thought process was cap rates are so low. And, and we had, this was a property we had converted a, a single family home into a triplex. And I, you know, I, I was familiar with the zoning. And so we made a return and I just, I moved on. Someone asked me a question um, when I was on a trip with my daughter. They said, uh, how do you make a million dollars? And I instantly turned to him and I told him, borrow a million dollars. And he kind of looked at me for a second and I had to explain it to him. But essentially I said, go out. Buy as much property as you can, acquire a million dollars in debt financing to acquire that real estate, that portfolio. Of course, the assumption here is all those properties are positive cash flow. So you have your tenant paying it off. And guess what? In 30 years, 20 years, 15 years, however you accelerate those payments, you're going to have a million dollars in net worth. That's how you make a million dollars. Borrow a million dollars. Well, and there's some truth to that. And I, I saw that in the institutional investment world. When I look at from from private equity firms to the the commercial real estate investment partnerships that we invested in, they they all they all use debt to in order to generate the return. The question is how much debt to the use, how much leverage to use. Because I mean, it can it can also, as you know, it it can bite you if you have too much leverage, and, and the market is 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 not working in your favor. Which goes back to your earlier point to have it in different markets, different at different real estate types. And be prudent in the use of leverage because what works to create wealth can also destroy wealth if you don't go about it right. Exactly. And that, that just means buying prudent, prudent properties or, you know, as, as you talk about, any kind of investment, any kind of asset. But you buy it right from the very beginning where it makes sense. It has to be a prudent investment that pays for itself. And, and that's the way you protect yourself and you minimize your risk. So I'm going to try and wrap this up here in about five minutes because I know you have a call at the top of the hour. One of the concerns that some of the investors that we talk to bring up, those people who are kind of more big picture, they, you know, they're they're wondering about where the economy is headed, and sometimes you know you have to kind of look in a crystal ball and and try and make some predictions based on what you know. Do you see us facing a depressionary environment over the next few years? Because some people refer to that simply as a market correction, but it could be worse than that. I don't look out two years. I, I don't think anybody can and say that we're going to face a depression. The, the, there are some risk out there. One, in fact, in the episode I'm doing this week, 116, I talk about the significant buildup in debt in China and the potential there of a banking crisis that could flow over around the world. I mean, that's a potential risk. But what I do, back to my earlier comment, is sort of looking at, at the leading edge of the present is I look at something anyone can do. That They're called purchaser manager indices or PMI. These, these are surveys done around the world where they ask businesses, how's business? How's your, your new orders? How's your employment? What are prices like? How's your inventory levels? And, and they're, they're, they're regulated to where if it comes out at, or standardized, when it comes out, if it's 50 or above, there's been a very typically an expansion in the economy. When it's been 50 or below, the economy is slowing. And generally when it's been below 48 to, to 47, that gives a high risk of recession. 
And, and so right now, when we look at globally, where are we? The, the PMI is about 50.5. And, and that, that suggests the global economy is close to stagnating, but still expanding at a very slow rate. And that's kind of where we've been for the last few years. And so when you look at the PMI in the U.S., it's above 50. And, and so I don't see, I mean, if I'm just going to base, I mean, that's the most reliable indicator I can find. And you can go and look at all these surveys. It's at, it's market, M-A-R-K-I-T, economics puts it out. So just do mark, you can Google market economics. They do press releases and you can kind of look at what PMIs are around the globe. And, and so when I look at that, I, I, I go back to, I look at investment conditions. So, I, in my mind, investment conditions right now, they're neutral. So the economy, it, it's neutral. It's, it's, there's not slow, it's not in a risk of recession is higher than normal since we're sort of close to stagnation mode, but it's not saying we're entering into a recession. When we look at valuations, I mentioned the U.S. stock market is overvalued. Other stock markets, not so. Other asset classes are, some are overvalued, some are, are fairly valued. And that's kind of what I look at. And then I also finally I look at the level of fear and greed in the market. And that that's sort of the swing signal that's always moving back and forth all the time. But to answer your request, I don't think anyone can predict a global depression in, in the coming years. And I don't think anyone should invest for fear out of that because many people do. I, I think that you look at what's driving returns, you look at where we are currently, and then you you have different portfolio drivers both on the public side as well as the private side, including rental real estate, and you'll be fine. Based on what you're saying, it sounds like we're going to continue to see a mild inflationary environment for the foreseeable future. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to see mild inflationary environment. I think you're going to continue to see very, very low interest rates. There, there's nothing to suggest, given what central banks are doing, given the just the, the, the sheer amount of savings and the way capital flows around the world that suggests interest rates are going higher or significantly higher anytime soon. And, and, and as a result, people need productive assets that can generate some income to outpace inflation because you're not going to do it just sitting in bonds. Well, well, that's a perfect environment for a real estate investor. You know, you have a mild inflationary environment, uh, low to no risk of recession, historically low interest rates, I mean, that's a perfect environment because real estate, as you know, has intrinsic value. It's durable. It maintains its value. It keeps pace with inflation. You could borrow money to purchase it, and then you can turn around and lease it to generate income. No, I agree. The, the only key is you got you to gotta buy it at the right price. The right place and the right price. Oh, at the right place. <laughs> right place and right price. Yeah, exactly. So, And that's why, I mean, yeah, I sound biased, of course, but that's why I love real estate. I, sure, I invest in you know other asset classes, but by far, I like real estate. And I know that's not your cup of tea, but it's okay. Well, wait, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's it's a tool. So I, I have real estate investments. I, I use it. It's not my predominant. I mean, it, it's you know, it's it's a good 30 to 40% of, of my investment portfolio. So it, it's not as if I'm not a, a real estate investor. But I certainly don't do it to the extent that that you and I'm sure many of your listeners do. Yeah, I, I'm just mentioning it as a, as a, as a matter of fact, not that one is better than the other. Uh, it's just a vehicle, you know. You call it a tool. Um, I guess in wrapping up, just how would you describe your? I mean, you've you've talked about this, you've kind of danced around it a little bit, but just 
kind of lay it out. What, what is your personal investment philosophy in, in, in generic terms at a high level? Long-term, keep fees low and have multiple drivers of the portfolio. So I, I'm very diversified in, and I, I own many different asset classes, including real estate. I own gold coins. I own stocks. I own bonds. I own investments in venture capital, in timber. And so it is, I want as many things working in my portfolio because I can't predict the future. And, and I don't think anyone can accurately predict the future. And, and in that environment, I want to have as many things going on, both things that are tied to the public market, but I also want pockets of independence so that if we get a situation where everything collapses, I still have a piece of ground I can grow some corn on. <laughs> not that I'm predicting yeah. that and I'm not. I just think that's just, just prudent, prudent living. <laughs> what are you trying to say, David? <laughs> Um, you are a wealth of information and I, I really tried to abbreviate this episode because we are up against a time limit. Uh, so just in wrapping up, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close? No, I, th I think we, I think we covered it. You, you can, you can find my podcast is money for the rest of us. You can find that at money for the rest of us.net. You can also find me on Twitter at JD Stein. Yeah. And like I said, it is a great podcast. I, I do listen to it on a regular basis. It's very well done. Uh, so I encourage our listeners to subscribe. Um, David, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Um, I will uh, continue listening to your stuff and maybe we'll have you back on the show later this year. Be great. Thanks. It was fun. I hope you enjoyed the show. It was interesting and entertaining. I hope it was not too complicated. Uh, some of this stuff can get very uh, messy and, and intricate and detailed, but um, I think the more you listen and learn, the less complicated it gets. At the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is really not that complicated. Um, it just seems that economists and politicians like to use complicated words and phrases to label things and make things sound more uh, sophisticated than what they actually are. But in any case, if you have any questions about real estate, real estate investing, or, uh, you know, the economy or where things are headed, uh, by all means, just, uh, go to passiverealestateinvesting.com, click on the ask Marco button, submit your question, and I will try to address that on a show. Um, I may just reply to you directly depending on what the question is. Uh, download our free report while you're there. If you're considering real estate as an asset class to add to your investment portfolio, uh, by all means, give one of our investment counselors a call and spend 15 minutes with them just to see if it's the right thing, the right fit for you. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if you are interested in getting a free mug and you enjoy the show, uh, by all means, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And that just helps us get the show out to more people. And I will be more than happy to send you one of our free new mugs, the Keep Calm and Invest On mug. Just be sure to include your address. And that's it for this week. So thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.
Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.